You know, if you're like me right now, you know, going through all this COVID-19 stuff, it can sometimes be so annoying because I like being around people. My wife makes fun of me because I will actually walk my dog around the neighborhood hoping to run into people just to talk to them. Social distancing. The dog keeps people away that far when we do it. And sometimes we get a little depressed. So what I did is I asked uh, Michael, one of the guys that works here, to put up this blog that Paul David Tripp did. Now, if you went through last week with us, the version devotional with Element, he's the guy who did that. And so he came up with this blog about COVID-19. And one of the things he says at the end of it is gratitude is a defense. And gratitude in what God is doing no matter where we are. And so I would encourage you, if you want to, you can go to our website and go to that COVID-19 page. There's a link to his blog that's on there. And just read through that. The things he says are really, really good to keep us in this understanding that no matter what happens, God is still in control and God is good and we can trust him and be grateful through all of it. So welcome to Element, wherever you are, whether anywhere in the United States, to Santa Maria, Thanks for joining us today. Uh, you can grab a Bible if you have one laying around. If you don't, you can use that Bible app called YouVersion. And when you take YouVersion, you can open it. You can click on More and then Events, and we will still come up in your smartphone. If you're not in Santa Maria, you can type in 93455, and the notes will come up. You'll get the verses we're going through today and any of those announcements and some of those links that are in there as well. My name is Aaron. I am one of the pastors at Element. You can stand where you are if you'd like. Or stay seated, but we're going to start with the reading of God's word. And this is Matthew chapter 9, verse 13. And Jesus says, Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let's pray. Father, this morning we ask that you would take us as a people who so often get so confused at the things that are happening around us, and you would reset us to understand what you were calling us to, who you were calling us to be in the world around us. Whether we are separated because of sheltering at home, or whether we're walking our dogs out in the world, you would be the one that we honor and glorify. You would reset our minds to understand the goodness and grace of who you are in all things that we do. This morning we ask that you would teach us through your word to understand better the things that you are calling us into as we understand the gospel and speak it into the world in ways that make sense. And so we ask this in your son's good name. Amen. So have a seat if you are standing or just stay seated if you are. Uh, this is Acts part two. It is week 14. And I'm going to jump in because I have a lot to get through today. I was going to make a joke about ending earlier, but that would have just been a joke because I'm not. Where I told you a couple weeks ago, Acts 15 is my favorite chapter in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 16 to me is one of the most unique. When I went through and originally did Acts 16, I thought, I'll go through that in one week. And then I decided, no, 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 I got to do that in two weeks. And then I decided, no, it's going to do it in three weeks. And after I wrote it all, a couple months later, I had this idea. And I came back and threw into Acts 16 again. That makes it into four weeks, which this is week three. Next week will be week four. But I had this idea going throughout Acts that we are going to help you to engage culture better, to help you to understand not just our own beliefs, the beliefs of those around us, that we could step into those in practical ways to speak the gospel, how it is understood understandable and intelligible. And so today what I want to do is help you if you call yourself a Christian to understand the difference between whether something is biblical or whether it's just your opinion that we've thrown onto the Bible. If you're not a Christian, this may be helpful for you as well to understand some of these things. And today I'm going to do this with these two terms. I'm going to call it tradition versus traditionalism. 
And I'm going to expect our, our own beliefs. And I'm going to spend some time using the illustration of how people have said the Bible is oppressive to women. I know if I would have written this message just last week, I could have talked about meeting in church and having meetings in homes and live streaming and not that being like normal. But I wrote this a while ago, so we're going to go with my original illustration because I think it works. I want to show eventually from Acts 16 when we get there, three different women that it highlights to show that everyone is loved and accepted by who God is, that the scriptures have always pointed in this direction, whether culture or history might disagree with that. See, part of our problem with how many people see women in the Bible as being oppressed is how they actually approach the Bible. They approach it with a particular agenda, and this happens with believers and unbelievers. And there's two main ways that people look at the Bible. The first one is like this. We view scripture through a lens of tradition, where your tradition basically becomes glasses and you put glasses on and you read the Bible through those glasses. And this will end up in what we call traditionalism, where we take our traditions and put them above the scriptures. The second way that people come in and look at the scriptures, and it is the correct way, is we can have our traditions. But that sits alongside the scriptures, and the scripture sits over our traditions in order to refocus and change us, to see things as God calls us to see things. Now, when people today say, everybody should read the Bible for themselves and figure out what it says to you, that is a terrible way to read and interpret the Bible. It's a way of saying, do whatever feels right to you. Because if that's your central theology, why would you read the Bible? Why would you go to a church where someone might disagree with you? You may as well just write your own book and read it back to yourself every day and say, oh, look, I'm so smart. As Christians, we are called to read and pray through the scriptures because we want God to change us. We want God to show us his truth. We want to be more like him. And that doesn't happen by trying to make him agree with us. Too often, religious people throughout the ages, including Christians, have tried to remake God in our own image, tried to make him agree with us, rather than letting God simply speak for himself. And letting God speak for himself is hard, because we all have biases. And we don't really want to hear what God says, we want to hear what we say. It's like I told you last week that various studies have been done where we will say, oh, we're becoming more like Jesus, but more often than not, we are making Jesus more like us. And we have these personal beliefs that no matter how hard we try not to, many times they overshadow our own beliefs and can turn into traditionalism. Now, an element, we do believe that we all should be reading the Bible for ourselves, but that doesn't mean we read it entirely on our own. Take, for example, the guys in the Reformation. One of my favorite guys is a guy named John Calvin. One of his greatest desires was for everyone to have a Bible in their hands that they could read. Why? He wanted to equip everyone to be able to read and understand it. So what he does is he writes this book. It's called Institutes in the Christian Religion. Starts off about this big, then he rewrites it and rewrites it, and now it's about this thick. But he also writes some commentaries, and he comes up with a catechism of questions and answers so ordinary people could read the Bible and then also understand what it says in its pages. He didn't just plop Bibles in people's hands and say, read it and figure it out. He wanted people to understand what they were reading because he believed when people got the scriptures into their hands, it would bring about revival. And so he brought people the tools to be able to do it correctly. And so where we believe everyone should read the Bible for themselves, not everyone should interpret what the Bible says on their own or for themselves. Like as an example, Jesus will say at one point, if your hand causes you to sin or your eye causes you to sin, cut it off or gouge it out. And if you don't understand what Jesus is saying in those words, you might do something he is not telling you to do. 
So we need to understand the words that are said in the scripture. And today there are so many people giving so many bizarre interpretations based upon their feelings that there is this whole push to go back to tradition. And many times tradition is not a bad thing. Tradition can actually be good when you look at where the church has come from, what it has learned, all the leadings of God. That's a good thing. When it turns bad is when it becomes traditionalism. Good tradition can interact with the culture. It can understand what God has been calling us to throughout the ages because of our great history. It can encourage the core doctrines the church had always adhered to, like the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed and who God is and who we are and salvation is by faith in Christ alone and His work for us. That's what happens when we have a tradition, but we allow the Bible to come along and overshadow our tradition to change many times what we believe when God calls us into different things. We understand the non-negotiables of the faith as they point us to God's purposes for the church, what it has always been, while engaging culture in ways that can make sense to culture. But then there is that problem with traditionalism, and this is when we hold certain traditions and beliefs so strongly that we stop reading the Bible for what it is, and we start reading it in a way that we want to make it just agree with us. If you read through tradition with those lenses on, you can become incapable of seeing the world in a gospel-centered context with cultural relevance. Now, Scott McKnight uh, has this book called The Blue Parakeet, and in this book, he lists six steps of what brings about traditionalism. And these are the six steps. He says, first off, you read the Bible. Now, that's a good thing. We recommend it for all of you. The second thing is there becomes an issue in the world that we're, it rubs up against us. We don't know what to do with it. So we take and we go to the scriptures and we read what the scriptures say. Usually those issues are with issues of holiness or how people see God. Then the third thing that happens is we can be convinced our view is the only valid interpretation of certain verses. Uh, Scott McKnight in his book will talk about infant baptism and how wars and battles were fought over whether infant baptism was a thing or not. The fourth thing that happens then is we start to throw verses around our opinion. We become bound to our opinion forever, saying this is what the Bible says, when it's really this is what our opinion says. The fifth thing then is we start to read the Bible through that bound tradition. And then sixth thing is those who question our tradition, will they become heretics? Somewhere between number four and number six, we become effective in our world. And we start to wish everybody could go back to 50, 60, a couple hundred years ago to the good old days. And we twist our opinions into traditionalism. And when that has been done in the past, it has supported slavery and segregation, uh, no instruments in church services, uh, priests and pastors having to be celibate and never get married. Uh, More recently, it's a type of music or what you can wear when you go to a church. Like, do you think it matters how a church performs baptisms? I do. I think it's very important how churches perform baptism. Like, Element has a requirement. If you want to be a member, you have to be baptized. We believe the scriptures call for it. It's one of the things that Jesus said to do very clearly, so we want to do that. But if you got sprinkled in another church in the past... We don't make you get re-baptized at Element in order to become a member. Baptism is called for. The mode shouldn't be a reason to go to war, even if I think it makes more sense to be immersed. But whatever. At Element, we usually do this thing called communion. Usually when we can meet together and we're not afraid of the mucus-filled death of COVID-19, but we do communion every week. This is another thing Jesus said to do in remembrance of him. 
And how we do it is you come up during a song and you break a cracker like Christ's body was broken for us and you dip it in either wine or grape juice as a reminder. I've had people visit from other churches who think that's just stupid. They say, you should pass out a tiny little cracker and a one-ounce shot of grape juice like Jesus did. But that's not really what Jesus did. Have other people say we shouldn't have wine with communion because wine is evil. There are literally a hundred different opinions. And yet the one thing we know, the good tradition, is that Jesus encouraged us to do communion for the purpose of remembering what he did in his death and resurrection to rescue and save us. So we remember the gospel. And how we do communion can be varied, but many take how to do it, and they make it into traditionalism. Now, I hope you're following in that, because I start this way because for the longest time, the whole ancient world, including the Jewish people, saw and treated women as inferior. It was an opinion of culture, and it became traditionalism. But if people would actually look at what the Bible actually said and not what culture or tradition was dictating, we could have actually enhanced and encountered culture in a positive way with the scriptures while showing the equality of men and women. One of the things that the Bible does over and over is elevate women and all human dignity all around. The inferiority of women was something that tainted how ancient people interpreted the scriptures and how they saw the world. When we get eventually to Acts 16, you see the beginnings of some of these sweeping changes that God is doing in his apostles' hearts and minds. When women, you see their role and their salvation. And again, I'm just using that as an example, but it's a good one because where we're at in Acts. So if you know this, uh, and if you don't, there are a lot of religions in the world who view women as less than a man. Element believes men and women are created different because you can see the differences, but they are created equal in the sight of God. There is this little book that has questions that little kids ask God, and one little boy says this, Dear God, are boys better than girls? I know you are one, so please don't let that influence your decision. (laughs) It's kind of funny. Uh, We believe that the Bible and Jesus raised the dignity and worth of all people, including outcasts at the time like women. Traditionalism would have come along and said, No, women have no value except to make babies. But God saw it differently. God saw equality. God saw how he created men and women to be co-equal. Even though all society at a given point saw it differently, it still didn't make that right. What God said has always been true and right. So looking at the Bible actually says you've got to start in Genesis 1, where God starts. God creates male and female. Now, God will make the man first. And some people will say, oh, well, God made men first, therefore, you know, men need to be in charge. Usually only dudes say that. But you have to read the whole narrative to understand what's taking place. Because God makes man, places him in a garden to take care of it, and then you read Genesis 2.18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. The garden is a place of freedom and beauty and life and grace and everything is right except that the man was alone. And ladies, you understand this if, if you know guys around you. Single guys are so lost. They do not do well on their own. I told you before that when I met my wife, I had a mullet and MC hammer pants. I was not good and I needed help. So God makes a helper for the man. And some people say, aha, helper, there it is. In the context of Genesis, helper doesn't mean junior assistant or slave or gopher. The word helper is used numerous times in the Old Testament. And the person it most often refers to is God himself. 
There's lots of these, but I'm just going to give you one. This is Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. Now, if that word is used for God, it obviously doesn't mean someone lower down on the totem pole of who's worthy and who has value. The truth of what Genesis teaches is that God comes and he gives the man and the woman to each other. He doesn't give the woman to the man because the man's not getting his chores done or the man needs a lackey. It's because they weren't good alone. The reason God made man and woman is so they could be a community. And maybe you are single, but there still is community that God intends us for live, to live within. Even in the midst of a COVID-19 outbreak where we are sheltering at home, we are still meant to be able to connect to one another. And much of the depression that comes around right now is because of that isolation. It's the idea here that Adam couldn't experience oneness on his own. So God creates Eve for Adam so they would know oneness together. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And what the Bible does is it starts out in Genesis 1, and it starts destroying what held an entire group of people in bondage. And do you maybe think that much of the ills in our world between the battle between chauvinism and feminism and how they relate to each other could maybe have been taken care of if we actually started in Genesis 1 as our tradition, making it the proper thing rather than our opinion of who's better that turns into traditionalism? God even defines the mission for the man and the woman. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion. Those words are careful to say that that mandate is given to the man and the woman both, both of them together. And so when you recap this, it's not that women were made to rule over men. It's not that men were made to rule over women, but we are to be equal image bearers, loved by God as we steward creation together. But what happened in the ancient world is this traditionalism and opinion took over and men started to collect wives like they were livestock. Then they could divorce them for any reason. Like if a woman put too much seasoning in a man's soup, they could be divorced. If a woman talked too loud, if a woman didn't bear children, even if it was the man's fault for shooting blanks, the woman got blamed for everything. And then when Jesus shows up, What you see is how he resets all of this back to God's original intent. And when Jesus speaks about this and talks this and how he lives, he is unique among rabbis. And I'm really condensing this, but just go with me here. In John chapter 4, Jesus will send his disciples off to get some lunch. When they return, Jesus is sitting next to a well having a conversation with a woman. And Jesus doesn't just talk to this woman. The exchange in the Gospel of John is the longest recorded theological exchange that Jesus has with anybody in the New Testament. And this is at a time when traditionalism said this, it would be better for the Torah, the Old Testament, to be burned than to entrusted, taught to a woman. This woman had been divorced five times. She's shacking up with a guy that's not her husband at the current time. And so Jesus understanding what God was calling us to in the scriptures, the real tradition, he does not condone her sin. He will actually point it out, but he does it for a reason. And that's in order to speak the gospel to her, which is God is on a rescue mission for lost people. And this is going to come to culmination in me. He doesn't condone her behavior. What he does is he shows her the links that God is going through to rescue and save her. And her life changes. And before anyone can see that change, she will become Jesus' emissary to her whole village. In Luke chapter 8, Jesus travels with men and women together. 
you know, which, which is really unheard of. But I think it's Jesus' way of teaching men and women how to live on mission together, bringing them back together again. And the women in the end were the ones who are bankrolling his ministry. You go to Luke 10, 39. There's a woman named Mary sitting at, this, at Jesus' feet. Those are terms of being a disciple. Women followed Jesus all the way to the cross, even when all the male disciples ran away. After the resurrection, Jesus will appear first to women. In all four Gospels, the task of being witnesses who testify to the truth of the resurrection is given first to women. In Luke chapter 24, uh, they come back being the first ones to see Jesus resurrected. They tell the disciples, Jesus is risen from the grave. A first century uh, Gentile skeptic named Galen wanted to discredit the resurrection. This is how he does it. This is what he writes. But who saw this? A hysterical female who was deluded by this sorcery. In many pagan circles, the resurrection was dismissed because it was first witnessed by women. And yet today, it's one of the most authentic marks of the resurrection being true. And the church doesn't hold this information back. They don't hide it. They clearly write it in the gospel accounts. They embrace it. They embrace it. And then when you get to the book of Acts, the church kind of explodes with this new idea, which is really a very old, original idea. If you have a Bible, open to Acts chapter 16. When I was thinking about this in regard to Acts, when I came back to it, I thought there are three great references in Acts 16 of females who are here and how God is restoring what he always meant to do. And so I want to show that to you, because this is another angle at that. The first one you run into in Acts 16 is Eunice and Lois. This is Timothy's mom and grandmother. Acts 16 verses 1 and 2 says this, So Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Now, Timothy is well spoken of by the brothers, but why? Well, 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy, and this is what he says. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. 2 Timothy three fourteen and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and from how and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. This is extraordinary, because what Paul says is even though there are other peoples in the, in the area who believed, it is these two women who are praised and acknowledged for their excellent example, for their teaching, for the discipleship they provided. And Timothy grows up to be one of the early ministers in the church. He becomes a a traveling companion of Paul. All of this despite the negative influence of living in this Gentile nation and maybe even in a home with a father who was not a believer. These words become world-changing in terms of women and proclaiming the gospel and training in the church and what God originally intended. And today, I know many women who live in homes with unbelieving spouses, and the difference they make in their children's lives changes them forever. I also know guys who live with unbelieving spouses, and it's the same thing, but today we're talking about women, so let's just go with that. The second one you run into in Acts 16 is Lydia. In Acts 16, verses 13 through 15, we talked about this last week. Paul ends up in this place called Macedonia, and he goes to Philippi. He's wandering around. He goes outside the city. He expects to meet a synagogue of men for prayer. And what he does is he runs into a group of women led by Lydia. Now, they share the gospel with them, and Lydia becomes the first convert to Christianity in Europe. And I want to restate that. I don't know if you heard that or not, but the first convert to Christianity in Europe was a woman and a group of women. 
Paul assumes when he gets there, it's going to be the men. He goes looking for the synagogue of men. But God expands his view, and he doesn't let this traditionalism get in the way. He prays with them, shares the gospel with them, and they believe. And then Lydia's hospitality and grace becomes the good tradition of the church there for centuries. Now, the third one you run into is a slave girl. We're going to talk more about her next week when we walk through the whole story. But in Acts 16, you do run into a possessed, abused, and used young girl. Paul will acknowledge her and save her. This is how this works. Acts 16, verses 16 through 18. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now, you might look at that and ask some questions. Well, how does that show Paul's expanded vision and God's expanded vision? Well, the word here for annoyed, it actually means grieved. It means grieved. The the word is you're troubled, you're worked up, you you don't like what's happening. Why? I think because Paul sees how she's abused. When it says to this slave girl that she had a spirit of divination, it literally translates as a spirit of python. Now, in Philippi, there's a temple at Delphi. Uh, Here are the ruins. Here's a nice picture of that. The oracle at Delphi was consulted for every major decision because they believed the gods spoke to her. But most often, she was actually enslaved. Here's another artist's representation of a picture of what that looks like, where they would chain her down and then listen to the things that she said. Now, this is she is guarded by this god called Python. Sometimes we'll call this Pythia, if you know... Anything, but Anyway, during this time, it seems wherever this spirit was that hijacked this oracle at Delphi also hijacked this slave girl. And her owners were more than thrilled because they can make money off her. Now, this is what she says. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Why does Paul have a problem with that? Wouldn't that something you, what you want someone to say? Like, if you're out proclaiming the gospel and someone possessed by a demon says, oh, listen to them, you know, they're just reinforcing your position. Like, if you own a donut shop and someone opens a donut shop next to you and that other person walks out and says, don't buy my donuts, buy his. They're better. That's what you'd want, right? Well, it might have helped Paul's message at first. People were intrigued, but in the end, it becomes a hindrance. How is that? Well, have you ever had to call up your credit card company or your TV provider, Amazon or something for help, and you speak to someone that is not from your culture? And they start like this. Hello, Mr. Carlberg. Let me see, Mr. Carlberg. Oh, I hear you, Mr. Carlberg. Uh, Let me look at that, Mr. Carlberg. And at first, all the misters are really nice until you realize they don't mean it, and they're just placating with you, and it kind of gets annoying. She's actually detracting from the message. When she says, these men are servants of the Most High God, That doesn't mean to the people in the culture of Philippi, God or Jesus. It most likely meant Zeus or whoever was the chief god in the pantheon of the gods at the time that was there. When she says, proclaim to you the way of salvation, that doesn't mean relationship with God or Jesus or eternal life in him. What that would mean to them is health and prosperity and rescue from some sort of disaster. And Paul may have waited till the crowds got big enough so when he sets this girl free, no one could question it. He becomes grieved, and he does something to show the power of God. He says, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. He doesn't say, I command you in the name of the Most High God. He says, Jesus, because he uses the occasion to set aside in a cultural context all of their gods, their oracles, their powers, and proclaim to them the name of Jesus. And we're going to talk about that next week and what comes out of that. But I want you to see is this girl, because number one, she's a slave. 
Secondly, she is female. And third, she is a child. In every ancient culture, traditionalism says you cannot get any lower. These were the most worthless categories, and there are three here found in one person. And what does Paul do? In front of the largest audience possible, he doesn't say, shut up in the name of Jesus. He sets her free in the name of Jesus. And a lot of people have asked, because Acts doesn't go on to say what happened to her. But what, what happened to her? Well, there's legends and stories that actually do come out of this. And if you look at in line of who Paul is and what the church is becoming and what has happened throughout the book of Acts, these stories seem true. And they point to Lydia and her band of women who step in and took in this girl. Because when this girl is exercised and the demon leaves her, she becomes worthless to her owners. She, at this point, would have become sex trafficked. And Lydia would have had to step in and actually purchase her freedom from her own funds. And so in the end, not only does the power of God set this girl free, but as people step in and set her free from physical slavery. And if you want to talk about a tradition that the scriptures speak of as true and right, that's what the scriptures speak about. Not leaving people in bondage, not leaving them to many times their own devices, but speaking the truth and the grace of God. And I don't know if I'm doing a good job of helping this make sense, but do you see the difference that the gospel makes when we understand it correctly? When the gospel can change our traditionalism to come back and see what God intends for us to do in the world? Like Element, we support a ministry in Thailand that started a church for ex-prostitutes because other churches didn't want them around because they were dirty. That's how most people might have seen this slave girl who, was, who had this demon who was in her. But that's not how the church in the end reacted. They bring her in. In America, many times we'll think how people see people who are less fortunate. We say, oh, how, how sad. And yet there are many, many people in many, many places that we have a tendency to look down on because of traditionalism, because of some life choices that people have made, and we say they're worthless or worth less than other people. What the scriptures call us to do as God resets us is to understand that God has placed his image on people. And that brings dignity and worth. And when we understand our salvation and the goodness of the gospel, how God came in and purchased our salvation out of the slavery that we were in, we should also be willing to take a step back and ask God what we're supposed to see when we look at the culture that's around us and how we should then engage that culture in ways that speak of God's goodness and grace and what he has always intended his people to be in the world, which is his hands and his feet and his ambassadors. The, what I, the verse I had you stand for at the very beginning is, is Matthew 9.13. It's Jesus quoting Hosea. And he says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous but sinners. And we must learn what that means if we're supposed to be effective in the world around us, reaching culture. Because traditionalism in that verse is sacrifice. Oh, it's works. You've got to work it off yourself. But the true tradition of who God calls us to be is a people who understand that we receive mercy. And so we also extend mercy. The gospel teaches us that we do the hard work in the world to understand the mercy God has given us. So we would also have mercy for the lost and the people that need to know who he is. We allow God to reset all of our opinions to what his truth really is, just like he does for Paul. See, this is what the good news of the gospel brings. It brings a resetting of who we are as a people to understand God's goodness and grace, that no matter where we've been, no matter who you are, the choices you have made, 
God comes to rescue you where you are. That we have all been like the poor slave girl. Our lives have been enslaved by so many things, and yet God comes to set us free and to give us his life and buy us out of the slavery we are in by his grace and his goodness and what Jesus did at the cross. And this is why at this point in typical services and element, we always bring you to the place of communion. Communion is the place where you would break that cracker like Christ's body is broken for us, and you would dip it in the wine or the grape juice as a reminder of what Jesus did in the gospel to rescue and save us. Now, obviously, we can't do that today. We will do it on Good Friday, by the way. Uh, But what we would like you to do is if you are so inclined, you can grab a cracker and some juice, and you could take communion in remembrance of what Jesus has done and allow that to begin to reset your focus and your opinions to see what God has always intended for us to be as his people in the world, a people who are saved by grace and the goodness of who he is. So I'm going to have the band come up. And as they do, you can, as I said, you know, take communion. Uh, I would encourage you, if you're in a place today where a lot of stuff is going on and you're feeling alone and isolated and you need prayer, I'd encourage you to send something to connect at our element.org. Uh, we can, our, our elders would love to pray for you. Uh, if it's something really important, we'll send it to the different gospel communities and the gospel communities will pray for you as well. Uh, that, that you would begin to see who God is in the midst of the isolation and the loneliness of where you are. Guys, we may not understand everything right now that God is doing, but we understand that God is good. And I think when we do that and understand the gospel, it will teach us to live in ways of gratitude. So our lives and how we speak of where we are begin to change. That our God is a good God who rescues and saves, and we get to live in that salvation. Um, at Element right now, uh, you can't come into the room and give like we say, but uh, you can give online. Uh, I give online. If you would like to mail in a check, you can still do that. Uh, 4890 Bethany Lane, Santa Maria, California, 93455. As I keep saying, Element is still giving to all of our church planters in the world and the different organizations in town. And we're actually helping a couple other people who have been affected by COVID-19 as well. So when you give, we still give to other people. Um, guys, I would encourage you. You know, wherever you are and whatever you are going through right now, to understand that God, I think, is trying to do a thing right now where he is shifting our understanding of what the church is meant to be in the world, how we're meant to interact with one another. And so don't let your traditionalism of, oh, I've got to meet in a building and sit in a pew or a chair and I've got to do it this way. Don't let that affect your worship of who God is. Allow God to reset all of us by the good news of his rescue and saving gospel as he sends us out into the world to be those who restore and bring hope and life. Because if you want to know a tradition of the scriptures, that's a good one. It is God who rescues and saves. And we get to be his people who proclaim that to the world. So let's allow God and what he says to overshadow all of our traditionalism and live in the grace he provides. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I ask that you would take us as a people and reset and refocus who we are so we understand the good news of your rescue of us. And by understanding that good news of your rescue, it would in turn change who we are. And that maybe certain things that we have held to which have pushed other people away from understanding your grace and your rescue would be things that would change in our own hearts and lives. And we would understand our own rescue enough that we would take a step back and to begin to live in the grace that you have first given to us. 
Father, in this time, it is very hard, very easy to get off track. It's very easy to get self-centered and myopic. And I ask that you and your spirit would continue to come through and reset our hearts and minds to see what you are doing even now. That all of us, our hearts, our lives, who we are, we bow down to you and your goodness. Make us a people who speak of your extravagant grace in ways that make sense. As we understand where not only our culture is today, but where it will be in a month or a year or five years from now. That we would always want to do the hard work of understanding where people are so we could speak to them in a way that makes sense of your saving grace exactly where they are. That you would use us as a people who have been redeemed and restored to love you as you have first loved us. Teach us to live out your ways in the world that bring grace because you have rescued us first. We ask this in your son's good name. Amen.